When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish on First podcast channel with me, Eli Sussman, the founder of Fish on First, providing you with complete coverage of your Miami Marlins. Sticking with this weekly schedule, usually on Tuesday mornings, the Fish on First channel, wherever you get your pods on our YouTube channel as well. You're watching me here. If you're seeing us over there, you can hear pods from me talking all things Marlins, usually with an assortment of special guests or staff members. This one is just a solo pod with me. Plenty to talk about uh, on this one inspired by recent events. It's not just the official show. Every two weeks, approximately, we have a new episode of Fish Unfiltered. Isaac Azut, Kevin Burrell, they have a very special episode cooking that's coming out very soon after this one. And we're being more consistent with Big Fish Small Pod, generally 10 minutes or less episodes talking about particular moments or analyzing very niche issues. So those go up on most weekdays. Also, wherever you get your pods, leave a rating and review, subscribe to us. If you would let us know how we're doing and help us continue to grow as we branch out even more our audio offerings here at fish on first. Um, most of this episode, I want to dedicate to the new guy, Vidal Brujan. Um, interesting trade. One of four, perhaps five players involved in this one transaction with Peter Bendix's former team, the Tampa Bay Rays, will be getting into that soon. But to lead off, I wanted to talk about the Marlins payroll as our leadoff topic here, which is it came into slightly sharper view this past week when the non-tender deadline passed. As expected, the Marlins didn't keep everybody from their arbitration-eligible class, non-tendering Jacob Stallings, non-tendering Garrett Hampson, Around the league, and sometimes the Marlins themselves, you'll see some players reach a particular salary agreement with their team right around the same time as that non-tender deadline. That didn't happen this year, so we're still working off of projections when it comes to the ARB-eligible guys on this Marlins team. I do have an article up on Fish on First that dives into this in more particular details if you haven't seen it already, so this segment kind of a companion to that payroll outlook, and I'll be updating it again once we get to the salary exchange deadline, that's way in mid-January is when um, almost all those arbitration-eligible deals will come into view, and then hopefully the Marlins will actually have a complete team put together right now. At this particular moment, the team has several gaping holes to it, and that is mildly concerning because of where the payroll stands right now. This is a good glimpse at it from roster resource. 
looking at the Marlins players who are either under guaranteed contracts for the moment or arbitration eligible. These, this is the vast majority of the payroll is, is a kind of geared towards these players. These, they comprise the vast majority of it, even though it's only about half of a roster right here. Josh Bell, of course, made that interesting decision to pick up his player option for $16.5 million. Avi Garcia making $12 million, as he has each of the past couple of years. Sandy Alcantara, his contract continues to steadily climb, now making $9.3 million. John Birdie, they picked up his club option for 2024 at $3.625 million. Between those four alone, yeah, you're looking at right around 40-ish million dollars, a little bit more than that in those players. And then there's the arbitration eligibles. So even with the moves they made with Stallings, with Hampson, and then earlier in the offseason with Jonathan Davis, he himself would have also been ARB eligible. There's still 10 other guys using projections from MLB trade rumors. Luis Arise is going to be the highest earner of that group, likely over $10 million. Then you have Tanner Scott, Jesus Lizardo, and even below that, you have a variety of players that are eligible for the first time or relievers that are eligible for the second time and make up a relatively small percentage of that. Guys like Jazz Chisholm Jr. and even Trevor Rogers, despite being injured the whole year, he accrued service time, which finally got him to the ARB eligible department. But just between, this is 14 players, and one of those, since Sandy, we're expecting to spend the entire of next year on the injured list. So that's only half an active roster's worth of players, and yet it is looking at, about $80 million just between those guys for a team that only has one catcher on the active roster who has really no clue what they're doing at shortstop at the moment, even though Bruhan is now in the mix. We'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah, big holes to address. Some uncertainty about their depth in the corner outfield spots. Uh, a question about uh, just the quality of the back end of their rotation, even though the top part of it still looks pretty good, even when it's Sandy list so from the article that I put up on fishonfirst.com on Saturday, we had it all together, $80.5 million for those players that appeared on the previous graphic. Even assuming they fill out the other half of the active roster, the other 13 spots with league minimum-ish players, ones that are earning basically nothing, you're still looking at a payroll tab of $90.325 million, and that is almost the same as it was entering the 2023 season. So we're talking about this roster with glaring issues to it, and yet it's in within a couple million dollars of where they were entering the 2023 season. So that just tells you kind of the interesting predicament that the Marlins are in right here. Uh, there was been really no particular pledge by Bruce Sherman to hit a certain payroll marker. He has gradually boosted up the team's payroll coming out of COVID. So you give him some credit for that. Even so, last year entered the season 23rd highest in the payroll. They finished a little bit above that because they were buyers during the season. They picked up more money when they swapped Segura for Josh Bell. They added more when they acquired David Robertson. They shed a little bit when in a couple of their other trades on, on the whole. And also when you combine the injuries that they had, pretty substantial injuries. When, when somebody gets hurt, they get paid while they're on the injured list, and yet you still need to fill their spot on the active roster with somebody that was otherwise in the minor leagues or on another team. So through that process, the team's payroll swelled well over $100 million during 2023. And even though it's progress being made, 
they are being dwarfed by some of the teams that they're competing against in the National League, and especially in the National League East. The Braves, for example, they're spending more than ever. They're pushing up already near the luxury tax at about $230-$240 million already. The New York Mets, they did a lot to shed payroll, and yet they're, they're going to be in that neighborhood yet again as well. You have the, um, the Philadelphia Phillies. I think the Phillies are even above those teams at this particular moment in terms of money that's on the books for 2024 now that they've re-signed Aaron Nola and given him a justified pay raise. This past year in baseball, what made it so interesting and certainly delightful from a Marlins perspective is that the correlation between team winning and payroll was so weak. It was there wasn't that same relationship that we're used to seeing between big market teams very on the vast majority of times getting into the postseason and the small market teams being among the worst in baseball. We saw the Arizona Diamondbacks in the Marlins same payroll tier get all the way to the World Series. We saw in the American League, the Yankees barely finished above 500, Boston Red Sox driven into ruin. The San Diego Padres, they set a team record for their spending, and yet they needed a rally at the end of the season just to make it look somewhat respectable. They were not a serious playoff threat all the way along, and we already touched on the Mets being a big disappointment. Even the Cardinals, a team that had one of their worst seasons in decades despite making a pretty big commitment to the Major League team. With the hiring of Peter Bendix, um, Peter knows as well as anybody, and he has shown that he can be part of an organization, a successful one, that is like pretty consistently great at the major league level, even while having a lower payroll than the Marlins. So it's not a necessity. The reality is if you look at kind of the, the larger view of this, just generally speaking about payroll in major league baseball, the correlation tends to be there. Teams rarely go deep into the postseason without being an above average spender. And the ones that are towards the bottom third in payroll very frequently, you're missing the playoffs or you're maybe, maybe fighting for one spot in your league with other teams in that same area. If the Marlins are going, if they have ambitions of being as good as they were in 2023, they either need some Bendix magic where they need to turn some of their returning players into better versions of themselves, simple as that, or they're going to have to blow past this level of spending that they're accustomed to, even what they did last year, considering the holes that they still have to fill. The reality that players like Avisiel Garcia, one of their highest paid players, uh, are they going to keep him on the roster just to potentially drag them further down? Or are they going to make the tough decision to part ways with him and leave more holes to fill? So between him, it's a tough position, admittedly, for the Marlins to be in to have Avi on the books, to have Sandy out for the year under while recovering from injury. I didn't even touch on the buyouts of Johnny Cueto and Matt Barnes. Between those two, it's over $5 million that they they paid those guys to go away instead of picking up their club options. It is a tough situation. And we kind of said that coming into this president of baseball ops search, that this would be a tough job, at least in year one. You kind of... In my opinion, you owe it to the fans to continue pushing to be a relevant, a relevant team, to be relevant for the second straight year in a way that this Marlins franchise really hasn't been throughout their entire history. To take a step backwards, it would, it would even though it would be defensible and kind of understandable under the circumstances, given 
you know, the lack of what's viewed as the lack of available budget and the limited amount of trade capital that you have in order to make upgrades without spending money in free agency. Uh, yeah, the short-term outlook is pretty tough, but at the same time, I, I don't think there will be a whole lot of understanding from from fans about that, considering that uh, yeah, expectations have been raised based on where they were the previous year. Um, and this is a fan base that has been deprived of a team that is consistently trying to be good. So, yeah, the reality is, is that it may take a couple of years for Bendix to fully lay the groundwork to be sustainably good. Um, if he's going to get it done right now, yeah, he's either going to take some sort of a miraculous turn of events with the talent that he has on this roster, some very clever maneuvering of buying low on players that we feel aren't particularly good at this stage of their career, or it will need the cooperation of Bruce Sherman in order to make some splashy acquisitions that actually raise the floor and the ceiling of this current team well beyond where it currently is. So yeah, that's where I'm at when it comes to payroll. As I said, you could read that article more on fishonfirst.com. I'll be updating it as the offseason goes along. At this stage, as I'm recording this, they don't seem particularly close to making another big move. They made one interesting one, um, a newsworthy one this past week, right around that same non-tender deadline, the roster protection deadline as well for the Rule 5 draft. They went to the Tampa Bay Rays. They took a couple players off of their 40-man roster, including Vidal Ruhan, who was formerly a very highly regarded prospect. And now a few years into his major league career, sort of lost in the wilderness. So the Rays were willing to sell low on this. Peter Bendix was willing to bring him in. And I want to dive into exactly what is going on with him as a major league hitter. He's had parts of three seasons to try it out. The results have been pretty terrible. He's now out of options. What did the Marlins see in him? What did Bendix in particular feel that he's going to turn around with Bruhan after this change of scenery? We'll get into more of that right after this break. Stick with me. I'm not sure why he deleted it, but Bruhan put out this very heartfelt Instagram post a few days after being traded from the Rays to the Marlins. Among other things, you can read the whole thing if you're watching on YouTube. Just to sum it up right here, it was about accepting that baseball is a business, showing gratitude towards the Rays organization for giving him the opportunity and for turning into, quote, my supportive family. I will forever love you and be grateful for believing in me. And then the second paragraph, acknowledging his change of scenery, Bruhan said, and I quote, now I remain a fish. Get it? Because he went from a ray to a marlin, still a fish, where I believe that once and for all, the numbers I put in the minor leagues will translate to the big leagues. Mr. Peter Bendix knows me well, and I look forward to making him and the Marlins proud. Unusual to see a, um, a traded player shout out his new organ, a particular executive from his new organization given the news like this, right? So that was interesting. And I think that tells you that Bendix himself probably contacted Bruhan to give him the news about this change of scenery. And not all that surprising that Bendix is bringing over some of the talent that he's known from the Marlins organization, from the Rays organization to his new place, um, relying on perhaps some things that he sees or some things that he believes that the organization uh, doesn't. So this was a four-player trade at least, um, with the Marlins also acquiring Calvin Fauche, 
and trading away two relatively low-level prospects, Andrew Lindsay and also Eric Lara. Both those guys just played in rookie ball this past year, but both of them have decent upside. They're just several years away from making it through. So the last piece of the equation is a player to be named later or cash considerations. And this is a deal that the downside is significant because the way Bruhan has struggled, as we're about to get into, and also Fauché at the major league level coming off a 7 ERA, also coming off an injury that he had at the end of the year. So he's a, he's a reliever with decent stuff, but it might not ever click in the big leagues. In Bruhan, he's out of minor league options, uh, which means that, yeah, if he doesn't show much early in the season, this is a player that they'll be clamoring to DFA him because you can't send him down immediately. Like, this is a guy that we've seen before, even though there have been those with less prospect pedigree or usually in this situation. Um, this is a deal that ultimately could prove to be a nothing burger or it could prove to be a net loss. I did want to say up top, before I get too critical about Bruhan, I want to say that I do approve of this trade. Uh, as a guy that was a perennial top 100 MLB prospect, several different standout tools early in his development, the way he performed while being much younger than the level of his competition. And even in recent years at AAA, back-to-back-to-back years, well above average hitter in terms of WRC plus for uh, for Bruhan. 111 in 2011, where 100 is league average, 117 the next year, 110 the next year. These are numbers with the AAA Durham Bulls. The problem is at the major league level, that has not shown up whatsoever. A glimpse at his numbers at this point. Negative one and a half wins above replacement despite playing what amounts to about a half season at the major league level. So on a negative three win pace, hitting 157 in his big league career with a 439 OPS. And his most recent opportunity in the show did not go any better this past season. He had 171. No home runs, a 438 OPS. Through these parts of three seasons combined in the big leagues, a 27 OPS plus, roughly his WRC plus, right around the same right there. Again, 100 is league average. When you're that close to zero, you are in pretty unfortunate company, as I'm about to show you. What I did here through StatHead, I sorted for infielders and outfielders since integration, which was... 76 years ago, more than that, <laughs> sorting through it by infielders and outfielders who were the same age that Bruhan was, ages 23 to 25. Uh, so excluding catchers, obviously excluding pitchers, although his batting line it, it doesn't look all that much different from what we were used to from seeing pitchers in the past. These are guys over this period of time that in a comparable amount of playing time as Bruhan, Bruhan's played 99 games, 272 plate appearances. There have been worse hitters than Bruhan in the big leagues during this span, to be clear. The difference is he's getting, over the course of multiple seasons, getting a significant opportunity to prove himself, and yet still struggling to this extreme degree. The very worst performer here that showed up was John Vukovic from the early 1970s, a name that you guys might be more familiar with, Brandon Wood who also had a ton of prospect hype coming up with the Angels in the late 2000s. Very similar overall numbers from Brandon Wood, and things did not really turn around from him. The, the names, when you go down a little bit, you get Don Bosch from the 1960s. Bruhan is fourth worst out of all these players. Infielders and outfielders, ages 23 to, 35, 23 to 25, 
in terms of the uh, OPS plus that he put up during these years. After him, you get Larry Garcia, you get Jack Cusick, Luis Gomez, you get Josh Bell, not the Josh Bell you're thinking of, a different Josh Bell who played for the D-backs and the Orioles and quickly fizzled out in the early 2010s. Um, other names here that I'm familiar with, really the only other one, the only other couple that I'm familiar with are Omar Quintanilla and then Mario Mendoza, who lended his name to the Mendoza line. So Mendoza, the guy who they named the Mendoza line after, he is actually slightly better than Bruhan. He's further from the top of the list when it comes to lowest OPS plus by MLB infielders and outfielders. Just for fun, this is not a apples to apples comparison, but just for fun, a familiar name that I also dug up, Lewis Brinson. When you take Bruhan's three major league seasons and you compare them to Brinson's 2019 season, this was his second year with the Marlins one where he spent it more with AAA than in the majors. Famously did not hit a single home run in the big leagues during that period of time. When you do the comparison side by side, it is uh, unfortunately pretty similar. Brinson during that year had a 23 OPS plus. His overall OPS was actually a little bit higher than Bruhan's by 18 points. His batting average is 16 points higher, but they both have the same number of total hits. They both hit for very limited power. Bruhan, more stolen bases. We'll get into Bruhan's steal, his base running, and his defense in a future episode. What I wanted to commit this segment to was just understanding exactly what is happening here with this stick. A guy that, as I, I told you, has been an above-average hitter even in these past couple of years when he's been in AAA, and yet to an almost historic level when he gets called up to the highest level, all that goes away. The numbers completely erode with him. Yeah, what is going on with Vidal Bruhan at the big league level. So to find the roots of this, it's not just one thing because the on the bright side, you could say what sticks out is that Bruhan is a decent contact hitter overall. He, in terms of whiff percentage, he is better than the league average hitter at actually making contact with a ball when he swings at it. Usually when you see guys that are on this extreme end of being lousy, it's it usually follows a similar pattern, right? Where guys are just swinging through the ball or they're chasing wildly and can't reach the ball, where it's clear they're overmatched because their strikeout rate is really high. Whereas with, whereas with Bruhan, in his major league career so far, his strikeout rate is not even 25%. It was exactly 25% in the majors this past season, 2023. Overall, 243 That's not terrible. That's not really a disqualifier, or it shouldn't be. Um, some of the bad habits that stuck out, though, are that he is super aggressive, especially early in counts, swinging at the first pitch about 42% of the time, whereas the league average is 30%. Swing a lot early in counts, hitting plenty of ground balls, too. This is the weird thing, how in AAA, he's really normal with a 42% ground ball rate. That's almost exactly the league average, whereas when he comes up to the majors, you see him hitting a lot more grounders, 48%. Now, he's a, a fast player. He's not exceptionally speedy. And just generally speaking, when possible, you want to elevate the ball. And that is yet another, when you do the pros and cons and both sides of this, what sticks out with Bruhan is that his launch angle on average is, for his career, 13%. And that is also, like right in line with the big league average, which is 12% during these past few years. So there's a good balance in terms of getting the ball off the ground 
during the 52% of times where it isn't directly on the ground. Like he does, when you average it all together, it looks kind of normal. And yet the issue is that he's not finding the barrel. What it comes down to, it's a player that seems to really have a lot of confidence in his ability to get his bat on the ball, that it's leading him to settle for swing at pitches that he probably shouldn't be swinging at. Even though he's making contact a good amount of the time, it's not quality contact. With Bruhan, um, the the big red flag is just the inability to make hard contact. He has barreled only four balls as defined by Stack. He's getting the ball on the barrel at least 95 degrees exit velocity and lifting it in the air. He's only done that four times in parts of three big league seasons. Only 1.5% of his plate appearances have ended in barrels, and that is less than one-third of the big league average. Whatever he's doing, it is not leading towards premium elevated contact. So he's hit a few home runs, and basically everything outside of that has just not been squared up the way that you want it to. He's been a little bit unlucky. Um, His weighted on base average as a big leaguer is 201, and that is 115 points below the league average. His expected weighted on base average is a little bit higher at 222. Those numbers, whenever there's that's so that's a significant separation that you would lead you to believe is a little bit unlucky. If you want to be more traditional and just look at the batting average on balls in play, for a lot of hitters that floats in the high 200s. And for him in the minors, he's generally been a little bit over 300 getting hits on balls in play. But in the majors, his BABIP is actually right below 200. There is some bad luck going on here in this sample size that are working against him. That being said, when you're not making really hard contact and you're seldom hitting the ball over the wall, um, it is really limiting his ceiling as a player. His maximum exit velocity as a big leaguer is only 107 miles per hour. Um, That is not ideal. Um, League average is closer to 110 for a max exit velo of a big league hitter. And just the vast majority of his stuff, on average, his average exit velo is only 85 and a half in the big leagues, which is a full three miles per hour below the league average. He is a little bit undersized. He's five foot ten, uh, what listed at 180 pounds. And as far as we could tell, that's still relatively accurate. It shouldn't be a big surprise that he's lacking in the power department. What I want to show you guys, a stat that we don't really talk about here, is bat speed. There are a couple different ways in order to get to gain power as a big league hitter. Um, It helps to be extremely strong so that when you make contact with the ball and you're transferring your weight towards the ball, that it goes a long way once that happens. The other key aspect of it is generating bat speed. You don't have to be super-duper muscular in order to do that yourself. Um, If you look at players that are near the top when it comes to bat speed, um, Jorge Soler, really high up there, kind of as expected. Um, Just as an example, Jake Berger was in that same category. In the uh, their average bat speed this past year, I think it was in the high 70s when I was looking at it, with a maximum back speed in the mid 80s. What I'm showing on the screen is I coupled together the Rays players and the Marlins players from this past season in ascending order. I looked at the ones with the lowest average bat speed, 
last season. And <laughs> what's funny, the Marlins players are in bold at this point. The vast majority of the ones at the bottom of this list are Marlins players. That should not be surprising considering how much this offense struggled. Luis Arise, among this group, looking at just Marlins and Rays players, he averaged 60.5 miles per hour with his average bat speed in 2023. That's largely by design. As you know, if you watch Arise hit, he's, he's not really trying to put all of his momentum into his swing. And that's the reason why he's able to control his swing so well and make so much contact. Right above him, uh, the second lowest average bat speed among these teams was Xavier Edwards, and he falls into a similar category. Stylistically, he's not trying to create a ton of bat speed, and it, his number is brought down even more by the fact that he intentionally bunts uh, a decent amount of the time as well. So there's a pretty big drop-off between them and everybody else. But as you go up the list in terms of bat speed, you find uh, Jacob Stallings, recently non-tendered. Isak Paredes was a surprise right here, although his when he gets his best swing off, it does have significantly more. He's also an extremely strong human being, right? So this shows that you know it's not an all consuming thing here you can make great contact even without bad speed as long as you have the physical strength to compensate for it right above him paredes was 64.3 we get to bruhan 64.5 this was of a group of slightly over 40 40 or 42 players combined on these teams hitters from the 2023 season and bruhan was the fifth lowest average bad speed at 64.5 just to go a little bit further the ones who were slightly ahead of Bruhan, Nick Fortes, Garrett Hampson, Joey Wendell. These are the guys at the very bottom of these two teams combined. Bruhan is just not creating a lot of bat speed. And I think people understood that from put up some video clips on Twitter of his swing from both sides of the plate. He is a switch hitter for people that weren't familiar. And I looked at the splits because I think the first thing people suggest when they see a switch hitter that is really struggling is to just focus on his dominant side. And with Bruhan, his history in professional baseball has just been really up and down in that regard. I don't think there are coherent. There have been certain years where there have been significant splits. Overall, um, I wouldn't say that there is one dramatic. I don't think there is like a clear dominant side with him. As we're talking during winter ball, his, he's doing pretty well as a right-handed batter. But overall, in the minor league careers, more often than not, he's been better as a left-handed batter. In the majors this past year, I think he was slightly better as a left-handed batter, but not good from either side. So I don't think that's the answer from him here. And his bat speed from both sides of the plate is very similar. One of them is about 64, 65 miles per hour. The other one is 64. They're, they're essentially just a rounding error away from each other. So that's the uh, fundamental issue here. Even though he elevates the ball quite a bit, um, he's not getting it on the barrel of the bat nearly enough. And even when he does, he's generating very little bat speed, so it doesn't go very far. Even in his best-case scenarios, you see a lot of balls that are dying on the warning track uh, with him, uh, unfortunately. And it is yeah, a little distressing for somebody that was a consensus top 100 MLB prospect as of 2019 and 2020. And who had been performing in the minors? He had double-digit homers in in AAA. I think uh, just this past season, didn't he? Uh, Ten home runs in just fifty-nine games in the minors this past year. So he was he was well on pace for twenty twenty-five 
had he actually played out that entire season. His minor league career high was 12, set in 2021. That was his first taste of the AAA level. He's at a point now where if you've repeated AAA two times, there's not much stock that you can put in those numbers anymore. I'm That's a pretty big um, core philosophy of mine is when you see players at a repeating level, especially once you reach a phase where they're age-appropriate for that level, you almost have to throw out the stats and even the peripheral stats somewhat because you can solve that level at a certain point as I think Bruhan kind of has. He has nothing left to prove down there. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, he's not going to have an opportunity to learn anything else at the AAA level. If the Marlins are unsatisfied and don't think he can help them in the big leagues, whether that comes during spring training or early in the regular season, they'll have to DFA him and run him through waivers. And if he clears, they can send him to the minors. There's a possibility that he would clear in that situation. Uh, if for a fourth straight year in the big league level, he falls short. That being said, I do think there's been some bad luck going against him. As far as I can tell, I think there's some of the right desirable intangibles that you want from a player here. Somebody that takes pride in what he does and is hungry to learn more, who, as we're speaking, is still playing in winter ball in order to get more reps in and discover the best version of himself. So I think even in a realistic worst case scenario, I think he's better than a true talent 157 hitter. That's not saying much, uh, but I want to get that out there that I think he is going to be better than he's shown entering his age 26 season. And now to be on the bright side, you could say, what does things look like if he really does turn this around for uh, for Bruhan? I brought up that list before of the lowest OPS plus by young infielders and outfielders in recent generations. And the name directly next to Bruhan is another undersized switch-hitting utility guy, Lueri Garcia. And I think that is actually a reasonable comp for Bruhan. Garcia 2.0, perhaps, if things go right for Bruhan. The H's lineup pretty much the same. Garcia, in some respects, was even more concerning, showed even less plate discipline, even more swing and miss in his early opportunities with the White Sox. But then... From 2016 on, Garcia, um, things turned around 2017 on, his age 26 season. Things did turn around kind of considerably for him. A, over his next six seasons, I bring that up because Bruhan is a desirable guy for the Marlins because he still has less than one year of Major League Service time, which means six years at least of club control remaining. For Garcia, he was in the exact same situation, had similar struggles. And then over his next six years, all of them with the White Sox, he was a 263 hitter. It was a relatively light, empty 263 line. It was an OPS of just 673, an OPS plus of 883, which is 17% lower than league average. But there were about five or six home runs per year, a career high of nine home runs for him. After that, there were a handful of stolen bases. His strikeout rate came down to a point where it's right around league average. And you add up the value when you combine that with his defensive versatility, he was worth about five wins above replacements over the rest of his team controlled years for the White Sox. He was actually slightly ahead of that 
And then the only reason why these numbers came down a little bit at the very end is because the White Sox were enamored enough to sign him to a three-year free agent deal at about $16.5 million, if I remember correctly. And it got off to such a poor start that they released him. His major league career is very likely over at this point, even though he is still getting paid by the White Sox. That's kind of besides the point. I do think this is somewhat of a relevant comp, though, for Bruhan, where you have Garcia. And didn't have the same prospect hype even that uh, Bruhan did when he was coming up through uh, you know, earlier in his career. His minor league numbers were not even in the same stratosphere as Bruhan's were. And yet, over time, he got enough reps, he got enough opportunities. His versatility allowed him to stay on the field. Bruhan, he's been all over the place. He was a middle infielder for most of his minor league career, but now at this stage, He's playing just as much in the corner outfield spots. He can even fake it in center field. Let me just take a quick look at Bruhan and where he's played when he's been in a major leaguer with the Rays. He's played second base more than anything else, but also quite a bit in right field and some at shortstop. But yeah, the, the other outfield positions have been more so in the minors and in winter ball. I think this is on the table for Bruhan to be a Lori Garcia 2.0 for this Marlins team. And... I think that would, I mean, that would certainly validate the trade to send off two guys that are still so far away from the major league level. I wouldn't say that this is the ceiling on Bruhan. Um, I don't like to put it past players to develop new abilities for him to create more bat speed for himself. There are ways to train and improve in that department, even into your mid twenties. Um, the Rays in particular, and now that the Marlins have some Rays DNA in their front office, uh, I don't want to put like a firm ceiling on what he can do. I don't want to outrule the fact that he could be a true everyday player at some point if everything goes right. But I do want to set kind of re reasonable standards right here, where I think this is the end. This is the goal for the Marlins in making this trade. And they're internally, I, I bet they're viewing him as somebody that could be somebody like a Garcia, a mid 200s hitter. With a little bit more, yeah, not a ton of plate discipline, but maybe he has a little more speed than Garcia does. Um, rich man's Garcia, perhaps for Bruhan moving forward. I think that is on the table for him, and that is why I approve of the trade because I, I do see this potential in him. Um, it's a weird spot for the team because he's out of minor league options because they already have several guys that were kind of tentatively penciled into the equation that are also power deficient. That seems to be the one clear limitation on Bruhan is I don't think you're going to be seeing anything close to average power from him, even if things do go right with him. The Marlins have John Birdie, of course, in the mix, and he finished off his season in 2023 on a very, very high note. Xavier Edwards, he showed a lot of encouraging things. Doesn't have the same versatility defensively as Bruhan does, but you could say he's a much higher floor as a hitter, somebody that um, is perhaps even better at making contact than uh, Bruhan is. Yeah, what I should mention with Bruhan is uh, he's shown a great skill of making contact on pitches out of the zone, and I think that has been one of the reasons why he's fallen into some bad habits is because he knows he can actually reach for balls and do something with them and that is uh, causing him to yeah, make over-aggressive decisions, put himself in situations where it's not as easy to drive the ball um, to this point in his career. The downside is pretty obvious. For a guy that 
has struggled with his date, his discipline. The numbers kind of speak for themselves. Um, his production, especially against fastballs has been atrocious. Um, yeah, if you have enough trouble just doing damage against fastballs, then you forget about, uh, having success against secondary pitches. When, once you already fall behind in the count with him, the downside is pretty clear. The risk that the Marlins made is minimal and something that really won't be felt for several years down the line, even if Andrew Lindsay, Eric Lara, even if either of them make it to the big leagues, which is a pretty big if. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in favor of this one, this reclamation project by low on a prospect. The Marlins have done this before, even before Bendix came in. Yeah, mixed results. You don't know for sure whether it's going to turn out great, but this is just the start of Marlins making some changes on the margins here to get ready for 2024. Yeah, still a lot ahead. I think we've spent enough time overanalyzing this one particular deal because to this point, the only trade of the Peter Bendix era, reaching for a very familiar face, wishing Bruhan all the best of luck. Um, I'll be continuing to follow him from the Dominican Winter League as he wraps up his participation there. And then you'll see him in spring training. Hopefully between now and then we get a better feel for what exactly he's working on this offseason to reach his full potential. As I've been doing since rebooting this weekly show, we finish off with the walk-off sign-off. Every At the end of every of these official shows, we replay a memory of a Marlins walk-off moment because everybody loves walk-offs. Who doesn't, right? As of this recording on November 20th, the, Mar the Major League Baseball, I should say, or the Baseball Hall of Fame, announced their 2024 ballots and the players that are on it for election this year. For the final time, Gary Sheffield, former Marlins great. This is his 10th and final year on the BBWAA ballot. He needs 75% of the vote. He got only 55 the previous year. He had one walk-off home run during his entire Marlins career. He did a lot outside of that. Just one walk-off homer. It was on September 3rd, 1997. We get you out of here listening to that memory of Chef. Did he get all of it? Back it goes to left. Back, back, back. This game is over. Gary Sheffield showed signs all night that he was swinging a good bat.